You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast. Hello and welcome to the Times Higher Education podcast. I am your host, Sarah Custer, and the editor of Campus, Times Higher Education's best practice platform full of advice, tips, guides, resources, everything you would want to know from your peers at universities and colleges around the world. I encourage you to go check out our content. It's all free in front of a paywall, timeshigherededucation.com forward slash campus. Now, joining me for today's episode, I am lucky enough to have Eliza Compton, our acting deputy editor on campus. Hello, Eliza. Hi, Sarah. It's very nice to be here. Welcome. I'm so pleased to have you back. And you did the interview for today's episode. Tell us who you spoke with. So, yes, I did. I spoke to James Pennell, who is the President and Vice-Chancellor of the University of the Arts, London. UAL being one of the largest and leading uh, art institutes and universities in the world. Um, Interested to hear what you spoke with James about. James brings a wealth of experience to any conversation around the arts having worked in in policy, digital strategy, um, and also filmmaking. And our conversation drew on many aspects of what UAL does and creativity in general, including innovation in online learning, um, what makes cities such creative places, and also the challenges and potential that AI presents for the creative sector. Hmm. Um, If I'm being totally honest, um, what I know is taught and learned in art institutes and about the fine arts in general, it doesn't strike me as full of disciplines that would lend themselves to an online learning environment, but I'm sure your conversation with James will totally prove me wrong. Is UAL doing uh, online courses? They are. They're doing quite a lot of exploration in this space. Um, I had the same question exactly, and James and I talked a bit about how the kinds of work that I was imagining, so for example, working in a ceramics studio could be translated to online. Hmm. Also interesting, and I'm not surprised at all, uh, interesting to hear that you guys touched on the impact that AI will have on the creative industries, considering that's been such a huge flashpoint uh, in the conversation as we're coming to grips with what AI means for societies and us as human beings and Uh, the reaction from the music industry and writers and uh, comedians. So give us just a little bit of a teaser. Don't tell us everything, but a teaser of what James's take is on that. The teaser I can say is that James's take was positive and it had a lot to do with creativity and originality. My appetite is whetted. Uh, Thanks so much, Eliza. Let's go hear from James Purnell. James, thank you so much for coming on the THE podcast today. Hi, Liza. Thanks for having me on. It's a real pleasure. I'm going to start with a question about you rather than your work at UAL. And we're talking about creativity today. So I wanted to know where in your life has creativity played a part in bringing about a turning point? So I think I mean, creativity has played a part throughout my life. You know, I spent a lot of my uh, teenage years uh, acting, uh, for example, and if life uh, and take a slightly different turn, I could have ended up doing that. But I think the, the most obvious and important moment was uh, after I left politics, I went to a, a 
a conference organised by uh, BritDoc called Good Pitch, which was all about how documentary films can make a difference in the world. And I got talking in the lunch break to an amazing woman called Penny Walcock, who's a radical film director. And I ended up producing her film, uh, her next film, which was a film about... um, She would say I self-appointed myself to produce her film. But it was a film about two gangs in Birmingham who had been killing each other for many, many years. And uh, one young man from one side deciding one day to try and see if they could reach a truce. Mm. And there were ups and downs, but the film documents them actually succeeding and getting to a point where, certainly for their generation, uh, the feud uh, was controlled, um, mm. became much less um, murderous, and you know the vast majority of the young men involved are now doing proper jobs. You know, they run a, a charity that helps persuade young people not to carry knives, for example. So it was a real example and a lesson in how creativity can make a difference in the, you know, the, in very different places and very difficult circumstances. So when I came to, to, to UAL, which you know, is, is the largest creative university in the world, the, the big thing on my mind was how creativity can make a difference to the world and we're, you know, we're trying to design our university around that social purpose. Yes, absolutely. And you've really taken this as a, a bit of a, a call to arms with the, the strategy for UAL, which is the world needs creativity. And your career has really borne this out, I think. I mean, you've looked at creativity from so many different angles, through policy, through your own creative work, and now through higher education. I wanted to ask you a little bit about post-pandemic Britain. What's the university sector's role in building back um, after the effects of the pandemic and even Brexit? Well, the impact of um, the pandemic on the creative sector was varied. Museums, obviously, very significantly affected. The the creative industries overall, I think, shrank by their GVA, went down by 6%, which was less than the average. And again, if you think back to what we were all doing in lockdown, a lot of it was stuff produced by the creative industries from, you know, watching TV to rereading Proust, as I'm sure all of your listeners managed to do during the various lockdowns. Um, but yeah, it took, a, it took a blow. And, you know, we very much see our role as supporting that recovery, notably through the pipeline of students who come through, through UAL and mm-hmm. through, the, through them being global. Uh, you know, we have 50% of our students are international students and we see that as a huge attribute of our education because, you know, the creative industries are global. So people leaving here with, it used to be a Rolodex, but it's now a sort of WhatsApp contact list of people all around the world is really important. But I think also thinking about preparing those students with the skills to change those industries when they go into them as graduates. And that's what we're getting from those sectors as well. You know, we have people from fashion, from games, from across the whole gamut to the creative industries coming and saying we want to change the way our industries work and how can you help us and that's that's about our students it's also about our research and our knowledge exchange and working to make sure that those ideas can reach businesses can set up help set up companies but also as I'm sure we'll discuss can help change the policy environment in which we work as well. Absolutely at UAL, I think you have been um, introducing new shorter courses through greater access to, to online, which seems to have made, as you say, so much, um, so much more possible. 
What else has UAL been doing post-pandemic to improve accessibility um, to to everyone for higher education? Yes, well, we see um, our role as very much trying to improve and certainly not go back on access. And as your listeners will uh, will know, there's a, a population bulge coming in terms of 18-year-olds. So if we stand still, it's going to get harder to get into our universities. You know, we, we follow Michael Crow's dictum at Arizona State, where he's said memorably, I think, that you know, they don't want to be defined by how exclusive they are, but, how, but by how inclusive they are. So we are planning to, to, to grow the number of places that we offer. It means improving access to those places and retention and attainment. So we have a big push on contextual admissions, for example, and, you know, flagging up people who are applying from care or who are applying from deprived uh, backgrounds and making sure that they get a fair crack in our admissions process. Um, And then, yeah, you're you're right. We're very excited about the potential of online. Um, At the moment, we offer about 14,000. We have about 14,000 people doing short courses and roughly about half of that is online. But that's all unaccredited. We now want to have a push around accredited courses because we think, you know, that there's huge potential there for people who currently can't come to London or who are older, who are working, who've got families, for them to be able to, you know, to fit a creative education around the way their their lives are set up. So, you know, we're going to be exploring that in a in a in a proactive way. Mm. It's really interesting. I read, I think you mentioned ceramics as being a course that did surprisingly well online. Uh, I think one of the one of the questions I definitely had was when you have a um, so much of ed- your education, the creative education that's based on practical application, how does that trans- translate online? Well, in the pandemic, we did all sorts of incredible things. You know, the ceramics team did amazing work helping people to make stuff from their bedrooms all over the world. Um, I always remember uh, our fine art, fine art course at CSM invented this shared digital world, a bit like Second Life, if anyone remembers that, where they, mm-hmm. it was both a place where they were creating online 3D sculptures, in effect, but, you know, digital, but they were all in the same world and it was also the place where they were meeting uh, online, uh, from, again, from their bedrooms all over the world. Um, so we're going to have a good go, you know, and there's lots of our courses which uh, aren't, aren't any more um, uh, based on physical making than, than other courses. So, you know, if you think about I don't know, fashion analytics or some of our business courses or some of our um, digital curation, for example, but we, we're pretty convinced that there's a real space for uh, us to be able to offer courses online, which would, um, which involve much more in-person making. And we think that partly because looking at the examples of people who do online really well, they're finding ways of doing all sorts of things. You know, I had an American university president telling me that they do midwifery online. So, um, you know, we have, the key thing we commit to, however, is that the standards on those courses will be at least as high as for our in-person courses. So it's not about mm. diluting standards. It's about supporting... a students who can't come and study in the same way in person in London. So we'll have a go. We'll obviously go for some courses where um, that's less of a challenge, but, you know, we really want to pioneer online creative education. So we'll also have a go at some of the courses that might, uh, that might be harder. 
Sounds really, really exciting and interesting. You did mention policy earlier on, and you've come from um, from a background in, in policy, working in government as well as think tanks. And part of the UAL mission is the social purpose element. So what's the connection there between social purpose and the, the knowledge economy? Well, for us, it starts with shaping the sectors which our students are going to go into. So it's obviously that's partly about making sure that we are, you know, they're teaching, uh, we're teaching and they're learning the, the right things. But it's also about being able to shape those sectors, both so that they're growing and offering you know, opportunities for people, but also so that that social purpose is threaded through what they um, want to do, whether it's you know, architecture or um, fashion and not having exploitative practices uh, in fashion. So one good example of that would be we set up a Creative Industries Policy Commission, which is trying to diagnose how the creative industries are doing in the UK and then come up with some policy proposals to make sure that we retain what is still a pretty leading leading position. Uh, we've done a big survey as part of that uh, and got lots of companies to talk about how they feel we're doing. And we, still early results, but it seems like people feel that our competitiveness has gone down over the last few years. And so that's mm-hmm. a trend. You know, we don't want to slip out of that leadership uh, position around the world. But there are lots of countries from you know, South Korea to Canada to Italy, France, who would dearly like to, uh, to overtake us. And we need to make sure that we come up with ideas through our research, through our KE, through our policy work to avoid that so that we secure the prospects of our graduates when they leave here. Mm-mm. I wanted to ask you also, what was the most surprising thing that you have discovered since coming into your position? I think you came into UAL in 2021. Um, now that you're actually within the sector, what has surprised you about um, this kind of work from the other side of the fence, as it were? I don't know if this is a surprise, but I, I seem to specialise in parts of the British public life which are loved around the world, but aren't quite as loved by um, some people in power. So I was at the BBC before, which is one of the wonderful things about the UK, in my view, and you know, incredibly important to our democracy, to our creative industries. I feel the same about our universities. You know, it, it, actually, if you listen, when I listen to Jeremy Hunt do his first inter- interview as Chancellor, and he was asked why he was optimistic about Britain, you mm. know, I think universities was the second thing that he mentioned. Um, so, you know, we, we are incredibly important, but sometimes we find it hard to get the support, certainly, that we feel that we deserve. So I think continuing to have to make that argument is something which I think is a reality of where we are, but it would be lovely to get to a point where we got to a more productive, more productive conversation. Mm-hmm. Interesting. For you, what does an ideal creative education look like? Well, we publish it, and it's called the Creative Attributes Framework. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is something that we try and make sure that all of our students get when they're coming through, uh, coming through UAL. And, and some of it is, you know, the creative method. So it's about something which, you know, actually it's interesting. We just done a survey of um, non-creative jobs, if there's such a thing, in non-creative sectors. So people who are in sales, for example, in tech or in finance. And they say that they have succeeded in those sectors partly because of their creative way of thinking, that they, they think outside the box and they're good at collaborating. 
Um, and so those are, um, that's for me, the ideal creative education. Obviously, it varies from games to, to sculpture, from fashion to, uh, to fine art. But, you know, we, we set out three headlines. One is making things happen. So that's things like being proactive and being agile. Uh, secondly, showcasing. So, you know, anyone mm-hmm. who works in the creative industries know you have to get out there and show your stuff and get people to love it and create a buzz. And then the third one is navigating change. And that's things like curiosity, resilience, uh, skills which, frankly, you talk to any employer in any sector, are increasingly prized by them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. How is AI going to affect um affect the way that, that, that you work or the sorts of preparation that you might be giving your students? Well, we think that it's going to have a, you know, clearly a big impact both on how we deliver our services. So, you know, we get lots of student inquiries. You can imagine AI will be, you know, in time really helpful there. Um, be a fantastic tool. And in some ways, this is a continuum with what we have now. You know, no one does a graphics course these days without using various programs to support them uh, to, uh, to create. You know, we don't make people just sit there with pencils and, uh, pencils and paper. Um, but I profoundly feel that actually what the trend towards AI will do is put a, a real premium on creativity and originality. Mm. One person said what AI does is go through all the things that have been created in the past and come up with the most obvious, uh, most predictable answer to a question. What a creative education equips you to do is come up with the most original one. So, yeah, we're absolutely wanting to harness that. We're absolutely aware of the changes that it's likely to bring out and bring about to various uh, creative professions. But in the end, what UAL teaches you is to be original, not to be the same as everybody else. And that feels like, um, if you go back to those creative attributes, it feels like things which will be increasingly precious. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think will be the biggest challenges? Well, the biggest challenge, I think, is going to be partly about copyright. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's a very important debate to be had uh, about uh, who gets paid for content. Mm-hmm. I think it's, again, it's something that we've had with platforms or, or, or already, um, you know, whether, con- whether content creators have been properly um, uh, remunerated. But I think AI brings it um, uh, brings that even more to the to the fore. Um, disruption of existing supply chains and ways of doing things, pressure on jobs. Um, but overall, I feel optimistic about it. I think it will create opportunities to do amazing things that we couldn't do before in the way that you know most of the technologies of the last 120 years have done. Mm, oh, it's nice to hear a bit of a positive spin on it. You are a born and bred Londoner. Um, I think I have that right. What is <laughs> what is it about London that um, that breeds creativity? Do you think? God, that's such a good question. I was born in London and then grew up for most of my life in France. How lovely! <laughs> I think cities create connections. You know, where does creativity mm. come from? Creativity comes from freedom. You know, the ability for people to think things that have me thought before but also from connections. And, you know, we, we did an event last year about fashion and music in Camden in the, in the uh, 80s and early 90s. Mm. Period that Britpop came out of, a whole bunch of 
you know, magazines, a whole bunch of really you know, nightclubs. And that came out of, as I understand it, a, you know, there, there was, for anyone who knows London, they'll know the West Way. There was a plan apparently to have a North Way, but it never, it never happened. It was going to go north from Tottenham Court Road through Camden. And so that whole area, which is now Camden Market, got blighted in planning terms. Mm. Yeah, we can debate whether that was good for traffic or not, but it was certainly great for artists because it meant there was a whole bunch of um, really cheap accommodation and that led to people being able to be creative and um, make stuff. Uh, so I think that's that's part of what makes London uh, such a creative hotspot. I think the second factor is money. You know, art always mm-hmm. thrives where there's buyers as well. And so that, you know, sometimes complicated, but symbiotic relationship between buyers and makers is important in, in big cities. And this this may sound, I hope it doesn't sound self-serving, but the third aspect with London is our universities. You know, the RCA is the number mm-hmm. one in the world, we're the number two in the world. You look at the Courtauld, you look at Goldsmiths, you look at the amazing faculties in, you know, uh, Kings, you look at, what's happening at UCL, you know, the the Bartlett, the Slade, there's just a critical mass of amazing students and amazing academics. Mm, Fantastic. And uh, I agree too, I think London is an incredible city. Um, UAL has got six campuses and you have mentioned the, the, back to the pandemic, the idea that it has freed up perhaps different spaces that could be used. Um, what's the relationship of UAL to place now in this new landscape? That's such a good question because we are global. You know, we have alumni mm. all over the world and I enjoy meeting them, but we're very rooted in our communities. You know, so for example, in Camberwell, we have very active involvement with, Cam- with South London citizens, mm-hmm. a community organising group, and we work with local groups, um, local leaders on changes that they want to achieve to housing, for example. Uh, we've just moved all of our uh, London College of Fashion students into our new building on East Bank, where we're incredibly <clears throat> excited to be next to the VNA, UCL, Sadler's Wells and the BBC. Uh, and we have you know, very specific commitments around employment, around apprenticeships, around uh, local education, um, around opening our doors, frankly. You know, we, we've got three, the first three floors are open to the public. Uh, uh, so we encourage people to come and see us and visit. So, yeah, I think that relationship between the very local and the very global is actually another thing, which is a foundation of creativity, and we take it very seriously and find it very life-affirming. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. I'm going to swing us back around to policy for my last question. We've got, um, we've got an election coming up in the UK, elections everywhere this year. What would you like to see happen in policy terms for the next term? Well, we need to help students in three ways. We need to help students when they're studying. You know, the cost of living uh, has become an incredible barrier, a really damaging barrier for too many students, particularly in London. So, and the amount of money that students get has not kept up with the cost of living crisis and the way that other um, areas of public spending have. Secondly, we need to invest in students when they're and the courses that they get. You know, the fact that the tuition fee is frozen uh, is a cut to the amount of money that they get spent on them. And, you know, we currently across the sector 
you know, we lose two and a half to three thousand pounds on every home student. So we have to start closing that gap. Otherwise, quality will suffer and they'll be less well prepared for life. And then we need to help students when they're graduates as well. And the, the changes which were recently made to the student finance system, are very technical, but the upshot of it is we now have nurses paying back more than bankers and that can't be right. So, you know, given the public finances, whoever wins, this won't be solved overnight. But I think starting to make a change and having more money for students' maintenance, more investment in their courses and a fairer repayment system when they leave feel like, you know, absolutely vital areas of priority. Mm-mm. Well, they are good thoughts to end on, I think, James. It's been such a pleasure speaking to you today. Um, thank you so much for your time in coming on the THE podcast. Thank you very much, Eliza. You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast. <laughs>